Sometimes you might just be breaking a house rule. Like if you're card counting, the casino may say, we don't allow card counters to play here and they can kick you out of the casino for card counting. But you're not committing a crime against the state by card counting. However, if you're moving chips around on the table after the cards have been shown, if you're doing anything to gain an unlawful advantage against the house, uh, other than using your own mental savvy, then you could be accused of committing gaming fraud and prosecuted by a local district attorney's office. The timing of when you get your battery domestic violence record sealed depends on whether you get convicted of battery domestic violence and the circumstances of the case. When the person is not convicted of battery domestic violence, if the person gets arrested for battery domestic violence, but the prosecutor decides not to bring charges, then the person may commence the record seal process after one year has passed from the date of arrest. This is because the district attorney's office has a year to change its mind about whether to bring criminal charges. If the person does get charged with battery domestic violence, but the prosecutor later drops the case, then the person may commence the record seal process immediately. If the defendant is convicted of a misdemeanor domestic violence, he or she has to wait a full seven years after the case is closed in order to begin the record seal process. Note that battery domestic violence is prosecuted as a misdemeanor in Nevada if it's the person's first or second time battery domestic violence arrest and no deadly weapons were used, no strangulation occurred, and the victim sustained no major injuries. If, however, the defendant is convicted of a Category C felony domestic violence, he or she would then have to wait 10 years after the case is closed in order to begin the record seal process. It's important to note that battery domestic violence is prosecuted as a Category C felony in Nevada if it's the defendant's third battery domestic violence case within seven years, or if the victim sustained substantial bodily harm in Nevada and no deadly weapon was used. If the defendant is convicted of a Category B felony domestic violence, he or she has to wait 10 years after the case is closed to begin the record seal process. Note that battery domestic violence is prosecuted as a Category B felony in Nevada if the defendant used a deadly weapon. Most people are able to get their battery domestic violence records sealed in Nevada. Although prosecutors and judges can always deny a record seal, that's very rare and there are ways to appeal. And some people with extensive criminal records may not be eligible for a record seal until extra time has passed. It depends on the person's individual criminal history. If you were arrested for battery domestic violence or ultimately you were convicted and would like to have your record sealed, call us at the Las Vegas Defense Group and we'll explain how we can get your record sealed.
pretty complicated pretty fast on you. There's rules and there's exceptions to the rules, but you're always driving to the sentencing table as we talked before, the criminal history category going one through six. And those little numbers in paren, zero or one, criminal history category one, two or three, and so forth, are criminal history points. They're not necessarily uh, the number of convictions. These are points that are uh, accumulated uh, via chapter four under the criminal history rules. And you get these points based on uh, prior sentences, based on uh, the defendant's status. Also, this idea of recency. You just got out of prison fairly recently and you're sort of, the defendant's sort of back at it again. We're saying you're gonna get extra points. The defendant's gonna get extra points under this idea of recency. And you'll see some types of offenses that are never counted. For example, foreign sentences, uh, tribal court sentences, uh, court martials, even juvenile status offenses, for example. Now, under the guidelines, juvenile convictions are countable, potentially, but not juvenile status offenses. You know, possession of alcohol by a minor would be an example of a juvenile status offense. And it works like this. You get three points if the sentence is greater than 13 months, two points if it's greater than 60 days or equal to 60 days up to 13 months, and one point for all others. And you'll see this time period. So if you have a a three-pointer, you got a two-year prison sentence. It's a three-pointer. You have a time period. It has to be within 15 years of the sentence. You'll see a notation, imposition, or release. What that means, you, you look at when that offense occurred and then count back 15 years. And if that prior sentence occurred within that 15 years, you're going to meet the requirements of that time period. If that prior sentence occurs before that 15-year period and the defendant got a prison sentence and was released within that 15-year time period, it's also countable. Okay, these time periods are important to keep in mind. So this is for prior offenses committed at 18 or older. These are adult um, prior sentences. And I'm, as I mentioned earlier, you also count sentences that occurred before uh, age 18. And it's a little bit different. Here you get, you get a three-pointer if uh, only if convicted as an adult and the sentence has to be greater than 13 months. And it's the time period is within 15 years of the sentence and position or release. A two-pointer for greater or equal to 60 days up to 13 months. You have a time period there within five years, and a one-pointer for all others. Now, there's some other important determinations you sort of have to be mindful of as you do the criminal history rules, and we can't point them all out for you, but the key ones, especially for you new folks, the key ones to be looking at is the relationship of prior sentences and uh, 
relevant conduct. Under 41.2A1, it says the term prior sentence means any sentence previously imposed upon adjudication of guilt for conduct not part of the instant offense. If you had a drug case, for example, where you had relevant conduct from a prior sentence being included in, in the current offense conduct, okay, you're going to include that in the offense and not count it as prior as a prior sentence. It gets a little complicated, but you know, on that point, but the basic rule is if it's part of the instant offense, if you pulled that conduct out of a state sentence and put it into the the current offense to do the guideline calculation, you're going to include it um, as, uh, you're not going to include it as a, a prior uh, sentence. The other point is uh, related prior cases. Related cases are treated as one sentence for purpose of the criminal history calculation. On page 293 of the guidelines manual, 41.2A2 says prior sentences imposed in unrelated cases are to be counted separately and prior sentences imposed in related cases are uh, treated as one sentence, one sentence for purposes of uh, 41.1. If, if a defendant comes in for a, in a prior sentence and there's two or three cases all sentenced on the same day, for example, they, they could be sort of grouped together, you know, into one sentence and, and have one set of criminal uh, history points for that uh, prior sentence. So you want to be mindful to take a look at related cases. The other point you want to be mindful of are prior revocations of supervision, sort of like the question, well, how do, how do the guidelines treat a, a prior sentence where there was also a, a probation sentence where then the probation... The defense to willful destruction of evidence might be that you lack the intent to get rid of evidence. For example, if, uh, if your partner came home and unbeknownst to you, they had uh, clothing that was used during the commission of a robbery or a firearm that they placed in the garbage and you simply threw the garbage out. But you didn't know that there was something of evidentiary value in the garbage. You would not be guilty of willfully destroying evidence. Additionally, you cannot be successfully prosecuted for willful destruction of evidence if the item which was destroyed had no evidentiary value in court. What's going on YouTube? Come back at you another video. So we got some breaking news. Rapper OMBPZ has been arrested for the shooting that took place in Atlanta recently, if you didn't hear the news, Roddy Rich and 42 Doug were on set shooting a music video. Three people ended up being shot. There wasn't many details at the time. There was nobody arrested. 
Now, OMB Peasy has been charged. I'm going to show you what his um, charges are. He's been arrested for aggravated assault with a deadly weapon, as well as possession of a firearm during a felony. So, o OMB Peasy clearly going to be facing some serious time during this incident. Three people were shot. Nobody lost their life, thankfully, but there was multiple injuries. I'm OMB Peasy now. A lot of people on the internet reacting to this all over his Instagram. You see people saying free OMB Peasy. Um, sad situation. We see this all too often. Hopefully OMB Peasy is not guilty of the crimes he's being accused of because if he is, there's a good chance he's probably going to go to prison for quite a while. Um, got to be smarter. Got to move better. Got to stay out of the streets in 2021. There's nothing left in the streets for anybody. He's claiming his innocence, though. Um, be sure that you at least give him the um, benefit of the doubt that he's innocent until this all plays out in court. Let me know what you guys think in the comments, though. Hit the like, subscribe, share, leave some feedback. Make sure you ring the notification bell, too, if you're subscribed, so you get updates my future videos when they drop. Before you leave, please take just one second, too, to click the link. I'm going to pin as the top comment. It's going to take you to a dope artist out there trying to get his YouTube channel monetized. He's almost there. Please click the link and subscribe. It costs you absolutely nothing. I definitely do appreciate you watching, though. Peace. Dang, this ain't the first time you thought it up with that, huh? <laughs> Gotta just float out. Like, oh, listen, you've been doing this for a minute. That's what I'm on. So five years from now, um, I'll have one of the leading softwares when it comes to financial literacy and credit education. I love it. Do you specifically target black people? No. No? It's just that's just people who relate to me the most yeah. right now. Gotcha. Gotcha. They like this way. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. Well, yeah. well, I, I, I want to say uh, thank you, man. And please let the people know how they can get in touch with you. At him500 on Instagram. So follow me on Instagram at him500. That's the easiest way to contact me. Uh, stay in touch. I shoot DMs back. You get voice memos. You might get a video. Um, just real connected with everybody. DMs is always close to empty to where they, I keep mope. So you reply to all your DMs for the most part. Yes, I bro, I I was I did it for a while, and then I just got I got so backed up, yeah. and now I can't catch up. So I'm I'm you know what I'm just gonna sit down this week. And I'm gonna go through all. It's probably like a thousand. Just words. delete all of those and start fresh, and then stay on top of it. And who would have thought of that? That's crazy. Like you, yo, this has been something that's been bothering me for like three months now. Yeah, like, oh, delete them. Start over. Thank you. Yeah, never gonna check them. <laughs> They've been unread for two weeks. The message doesn't even matter anymore. Delete the story, story oh. replies, and it's, it's, you'll get a whole bunch of likes. And 
delete it and restart over. That is so amazing. First, okay, thank you. All right, I appreciate leave, yeah, you. You just gave me a bar. You just yeah. gave me a bar. I was worth the price of admission. All right, cool. I want you to leave us with um, something that the people can uh, take with them and hold on to for the rest of this year, for the rest of next year. Um, just leave us with a closing note. With a closing note? I got it. Before you get there, before you get there, give me a formula. I like your formulas. You have like the way you teach. Okay. Give me a formula and then we'll close. A formula. Um, I'm going to give you guys a formula on something that everybody needs and that's how to clean your credit. Uh, that's one of the things I don't believe in charging for myself. I believe in if I get on the platform, the relationships I've been able to build with people like you, that I should be able to give our community that for free. So I tell people this is that the reason why you can't get a lot of the negative items removed from your credit report is because there's a company called SageStream, there's a company called LexisNexis, there's a company called CoreLogix, there's a company called ARS, and there's a company called Innovis. Those are secondary data furnishing companies. Those companies house the information that verifies the negative information on your credit report that helps match the collection agency's information, your foreclosures, your repossessions. They match those, that information with your secondary data furnishing companies. If you opt out and suppress these five furnishing companies, it will enhance your deletions by 60%. When you do a, a dispute method, you have to understand as well is that only way you can remove a negative item if it's inaccurate or if it's unverifiable. We cause inaccuracies by removing these, I mean unverifiable by removing the secondary data furnishers. That causes it to be unverifiable because this is where they verify your data. So we opt out of those then we make things unverifiable. Meaning, look at the names and addresses, any misspelled names, any wrong addresses on your credit report are most likely tied to negative accounts or accounts in your credit report. Remove them, you should only have one. Boom, you can do that over the phone. You never send a dispute letter to remove addresses and um, misspelled names. You do it over the phone. Now, you've caused inaccuracies and you help make things um, inaccurate and help cause the negative items to be unverifiable just by opting out and suppressing those. So now when you do a dispute, I tell people use a 609 letter, find a template, make it sound like it's personal. Don't just use it cut and paste. Take some of the words out, make it sound personal, make it sound like it's coming from first person. You're talking to the credit bureau. Then what do you do? You send your disputes in. That's one way to get negative items removed. Biggest bar is most people don't know there's a company called Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, CFPB.gov. That's the government regulation site that governs the credit bureaus. The credit bureaus are private companies. So TransUnion, Experian, and Equifax are privately owned. Well. CFPB controls them. Well, if you don't want to have to, if you go through and you suppress the secondary agencies and you make things unverifiable and accurate and it still gets, it comes back and the company says, oh, that's.
LLC versus S Corp. What is the difference? And can it save me a ton of money in taxes? What's up, guys? I'm Prince Donnell, founder of Jumping Jack Tax Franchise. Appreciate you for watching this video. Uh, first and foremost, before I even get into any of this, shout out to all of our newest subscribers. Uh, I think we're about to hit 40,000 subscribers as of today that of people that have joined our family. And uh, I appreciate you. Thank you for liking. Thank you for commenting. Uh, thank you all for putting, for inserting so many questions that I can make videos about. And uh, I thank you for being a part of the family. So please like, like, comment, and subscribe to this video if I provide you with a ton of value here. This isn't even going to be a long video today because I'm just going to be breaking down the facts. And the reason why I thought it was important to make this video today is because I've been getting a ton of direct messages like, Don, create a video about LLC versus S-Corp. Please, I heard it saves a ton of money in taxes. I'm about to switch over to an S-Corp. I even saw comments on my YouTube page like, nah, Don, don't do it all. You need to move to S-Corp. And it sounds great in theory, but here's the thing. And, I, and, and this, this is rule number one of entrepreneurship. And y'all know I like to give a lot of lessons on entrepreneurship as I'm going through the video and talking about the facts. Number one, if you're a new entrepreneur that's watching this video right now, um, please, 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 I am begging you, do not just do things without understanding the knowledge behind what you're doing or not hiring professionals that are going to be educating you on this process. Let me also state a disclaimer for you. I am not a CPA, I am not an attorney. Although I have a tax franchise, I still have a CPA that I have hired that handles my taxes and I still have attorneys that handle all of my legal things that I have to take care of for my business. Why? Because that's what a smart entrepreneur does. Because you don't know everything. So please do not just scroll on social media and because everybody says move to S-Corp because this theory went around or you're looking through my comments and you got this message from somebody who is like, hey, move to S-Corp and you're like, hey, I'm just going to do it. No, please Get the knowledge first. That's what makes you a great entrepreneur. And I'll disclaim this before I keep moving forward about LLC versus S-Corp. Having an S-Corp is a different type of beast, okay? There's a lot of different maintenance, hiring attorneys, having CPAs, payroll, all the things that I'm going to get into in a second that if you're new here as an entrepreneur or if you haven't even made a certain amount of profit, then an escort might not even be for you, right? You can still watch this video because it's going to give you the knowledge for the future, but it may not be for you as of right now. An LLC is perfectly fine for you if you're just starting out and you may not be making enough in net profit or you can't handle all the maintenance and, and things that are required of an escort. That's fine. Guess what? When I first started my business five years ago, I started out as a sole proprietor, right? And then I, as a sole, like literally sole proprietor business was in directly in my name. Like I had no <laughs> legal protection, nothing, just me as a sole proprietor. And then I moved up and said, oh, 
you know what? Somebody told me I need to get an LLC for asset protection to be able to shield my business from my personal assets. So let me go ahead and move into an LLC. And I gradually moved up to LLC. And then once net profit came in, I moved over to S Corp. So understand that this is a journey. This is not something that you have to do overnight. This is not something that you got to keep figuring out. All I want you to figure out right now, right? If you're new as an entrepreneur, and you're not making much profit. All I want you to figure out right now is how to get your business to start getting sales, right? That's what I want you to figure out. How can I get sales? How can I worry about my marketing, right? That's what that's the main things you need to worry about here. Now, for my entrepreneurs that are starting to generate some net profit, right? You are getting customers, right? Now we have to start talking about exposure, okay? The reason why I talk about exposure is because the more customers you get, the more money you make, exposures come. Exposures come from a legal side. Exposures come from a tax side. And that's where now you have to worry about these issues on how to save money on taxes, on how to protect your personal assets. That's where that conversation starts to come into play. And this is where we now start talking about LLC versus S-Corp, okay? So that's very important. Now, I would suggest, if you're watching this video, definitely make sure you have an LLC because I, I would always advocate, advocate for that. You want to be able to have some type of legal protection in place to protect your personal assets if you're dealing with customers, right? That's the main simplest thing you can do from here. But now that we're going to be going into this video, let's talk about LLC versus S Corp. And before I do that, let me just break down the science of an S Corp. They're talking about self-employment tax, which I'll be talking about in a second, self-employment tax. As an S Corp, you can start to bypass some of those self-employment taxes to save yourself some money and keep it in your pocket. And that's what we'll be talking about here in this next step. All right, now we're down to the fun part. Let's break down an LLC that's taxed as a sole proprietorship, LLC taxed as an S Corp, and really showing you the numbers from a tax standpoint, right? And then we'll get into when is it actually worth your time to be elected to be taxed as an S-Corp? Because there is a breaking point of when it's worth your time, right? Because me as an entrepreneur, taxes, let's just take taxes away from this. There's, 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 a, there's a, a, a cost of time, right? As entrepreneurs, we, we have time that, that we need to make money, marketing, etc., right? And then on top of that, we're paying for attorneys and we're paying for tax tax professionals or CPAs, or if we have to pay state fees for our S-Corp, then there's a certain amount of time that's involved to do all of these things, which means that it needs to be worth my time to save that money by electing to be taxed as an S-Corp, which we'll talk about in that next part after that. But let's break this down here um, of why an S-Corp can be an advantage to those that are netting a certain amount of money. So I, I'm, I'm going to compare both here. So you'll see LLC taxes and S, uh, sole prop and the LLC taxes and S corp. And we're going to talk about both here. So again, we still got Prince Donnell LLC. Y'all know that he, Prince Donnell LLC, I do marketing, TikTok, YouTube, all types of stuff, right? And um, like I talked about in the last example, same example here, made $150,000 in revenue, right? 
um, 50,000 in expenses, I netted 100K. Now, my LLC is taxes and S Corp over here, same thing, 150,000 in revenue, 50,000 in expenses, and then I netted 100K. Same examples here on both sides, on both, both sides of the tax. Now remember, as an LLC tax is a uh, sole prop, remember, you're paying so, uh, self-employment tax on the entire net of the 100K. Okay, self-employment tax, uh, Medicare, Social Security, 15.3%. You're paying $15,300, a bill that you got to pay to the government, right? And then remember, let's say to my taxable income, when, uh, when that money passes through to my personal tax return, let's say that my taxable income is $80,000. Well, now on my taxable income of $80,000, I got to pay federal taxes, state taxes, local taxes, I'm here in Philadelphia, and other, there's other taxes that could be involved as well. So let's just assume that I'm paying about 25% between federal, state, local, and other tax. Then that, let's say it's 20 grand that I got to cut out to the government as well. Well, okay, that means total between self-employment tax and my federal, state, local, and other taxes, I'm paying about $36,000 for that year in taxes. That's about 3,000 a month, like we talked about in the last part of the video. That's a lot of money, okay? And I could think of like 50 different ways I could use this money right here, okay? So that's that's being taxed as sole proprietor. You're not getting any savings here on the sole proprietor side, no savings, right? But again, like I told you on the earlier part of the video, that's okay if you're just starting out and you may not be making a lot of profitability. Remember, this is on netting 100K. If you only net in 15, 20K, 30K, then slow your roll for a second and I'll talk about that. You're still, you're still gearing yourself up, okay? Now, let's talk about the LLC taxes and S Corp with the same example where I netted 100,000. Here's the difference with the S Corp on where the tax savings comes into play that you've heard all over the internet. With that 100,000, now remember, on the sole prop side, I'm paying self-employment tax on the entire 100,000. Here's the difference with the S Corp. The difference with the S Corp is that I am able to control how this, this $100,000 is paid, okay? Now, I have two ways that I can pay out this $100,000 in net income that my business made. The first way that I can pay it out is through a reasonable salary, and the second way I can pay that out is through a distribution. Let's talk about both, right? Now, I'm, I'm sure that y'all know that when you're an LLC as a uh, sole proprietor, you're not you're not, you're not paying a salary as an LLC to sole, sole prop. There's no salary involved, right? You just write yourself a check, but you don't, there's no payroll system for you as the actual business owner of the LLC to sole prop. When you're taxed as an S Corp, you actually become an employee now of the company, of your own company. You're an employee. You have to pay yourself a reasonable salary now, which I would suggest going to a payroll service in order to do that. Please do that, because if you don't, and you're just writing yourself, now you're going to have other tax situations in the future. Go with a payroll service, uh, run your reason, run your salary through there, so that they can already take the tax. You just have to understand credit cards. You have to understand their systems. 
Well, I tell people the goal is not, like, I don't teach people to just go out and do that. That's just something cool we figured out and found out. So that was one of the cool things. But I tell people is that, like, I tell people how to hide their credit card utilization. It's just learning things like that to where we don't pay interest on our credit cards. These are the type of things that we need to know is that, like, those are the most, those are the fascinating things because people go, People charge me to liquidate my credit card. You just told me how to do it for free. Yeah. Literally, off, um, I've seen people go, hey, I don't know you, but you said this. I did it. It worked. I bought my real estate project, and I didn't have to spend my, like, going to debt to pay for my, my home. Yeah. You 3.5% in the negative before you even go do a deal. Mm. You imagine that you get funded at a hundred thousand, you got to pull a hundred thousand off your credit cards. You three point five to the to the negative before you even go anywhere else. Right. Plus your monthly reoccurring fee. You get me? That's why people lose. Like I tell people, I teach people how to go to where if you were going into real estate and you had a hundred thousand in funding, when you liquidate, you'll be worth a hundred and and five, a hundred and six. So now you have more capital. You're not going negative before you even get into the investment deal. And a lot of times they get into deals. And if you do get a wrong deal, you don't even know how to get out. Right. So I got this. I got this play that I'm working on. Um, it is. A real estate, so I'm, I'll share with you after. But we're uh, about to buy a building, right? And okay. Let's just say it's going to be a hundred thousand dollars in renovations. Mm-hmm. So I've got a bunch of, I've got a, because I, I, I use like like you, I use my credit card and I pay it off. So I have, um, I got about, I got about a hundred in, um, in you know, credit card balance, right? Okay. Like, Zero balance, I can charge it up to about a hundred. Okay. So, is there a way to float all this money or use my cards without having to pay all the interest? Is there a way? One, you can hide your credit card utilization, right? And if you hide it, then I can get another card. Is that what you're saying? You can get more cards, but you have to be particular about which cards you go out and get depending on what your situation is. See, I put people in a situation before they get to that point to where they don't have to worry about it. Let me bring this up just in case. I'm sorry. So I put people in a position before they get to the point of purchasing to where they're okay, right? Because you're going to have, there's different credit card types. You have your credit cards that are standard credit cards, meaning you got a $15,000 limit, this is what you have. You have charge cards. Your charge cards are going to be the cards that are based off of your spending habit, right? right? So we run our charge card limits up with business to grow our limits to where when it's time to do a deal like that and I need 100,000, I have it access. Mm-hmm. Okay, meanwhile, I have my standard cards here that have my regular limits, but with these cards, I set up and I add people on as authorized users. Yeah. So I sell trade lines. Well, now, if I sell trade lines at 650 and I have 10 spots available, that's 6,500 every cycle. How long do you keep them on your card? 60 days. 
So, it, so you add somebody. Is this something we could talk about? Yeah. Okay. So you add somebody on your trade line for mm-hmm. let's say six fifty, mm-hmm. and every two months, if they want to stay on that, no. They so you add trade lines last. It's once their credit report is together, depending on what they're looking to go do, you add them last. Okay. It's just a, it's just you have to know the formula. When you add somebody as an authorized user, it's not oh you're going to get excellent credit. You're good to go now. No, you structure a report properly, add the authorized user on to help with the data points. So once it helps with the data points of your age, your credit report, total number of accounts, your credit utilization, you add them on as an authorized user last. Now they go and do what they need to do, establish more new accounts. When the trade line gets removed, those accounts season fill the gap for where the trade lines work. Okay, so I add 10 people on as an authorized user, that's $6,500 every 60 days. If I got three cards, got it. Got I'm at 18, it. almost 20,000 every 60 days. Okay, so in a situation you go, well, I'm going to go and spend 100,000 on this property. My goal was that get these credit cards together first and get this business flowing. So when you go spend that hundred thousand, you go, I spend a hundred thousand here, but I'm not spending my hundred thousand. Guess what, American Express? Guess what? You know, Barclays. The trade lines that I'm selling on these ones, pay that card back. So now I'm not out of pocket. Got it. Got it. Got it. Here in Nevada, the age of consent to have sex is 16 years old. If you have sex with someone under the age of 16, generally in the 14 to 15 year range, that is considered to be a crime of statutory sexual seduction. A statutory sexual seduction charge is commonly referred to in other states as statutory rape. If the party is 16 or over, there's no crime. Now, a lot of people uh, sort of react to the term statutory rape by saying, well, it wasn't a rape. I mean, the uh, yes, maybe I I had sex with a minor, but it was perfectly consensual. Uh, She or he uh, uh, invited it. You know, there was no force. There was no coercion. And... The, the response is that it really doesn't matter because the law says a minor does not have the ability to consent to sex. So, so even if it's sort of consensual in a very common sense way of thinking about it, uh, it's still a crime, legally speaking. Regarding penalties for statutory sexual seduction here in Nevada, The penalty is contingent upon the age of the accused. If you are under the age of 21 and you have sex with someone under the age of 16, that is a gross misdemeanor punishable by either 12 months in jail or a $2,000 fine. However, if you are above the age of 21 and you have sex with someone under the age of 16, the penalties are much more severe It is a category C felony punishable by one to five years of imprisonment in the Nevada Department of Corrections. Further, the penalties also encompass sex offender registration, which often can be for life. A lot of people assume that if someone had a false ID 
or falsely told someone they were above the age of 16 that that's a defense. In Nevada, it's not. It's a strict liability crime. So if someone is under the age of 16 and you have sexual relations with them, you can be charged with the crime of statutory sexual seduction. Now, now we find that, that this offense of statutory rape, unlawful sex with a minor, is really one where a lot of people do get wrongly accused. And one of the reasons is that, that the accused may not have had uh, actual sex w with the person. So uh, they may have kissed, they may have, there may have been heavy petting, cuddling, uh, sort of uh, romantic interaction that claim, came close to sex, but no actual penetration. And if that's the case, then it's not the crime of statutory rape. Secondly, we see a lot of false accusations. Uh, minors make accusations against adults all the time for, for a host of reasons. Sometimes they, they feel neglected, they're jealous, they're bitter, they're angry. So a lot of times it's he said, she said situations where where. Uh, we have a client who's been falsely accused. These cases are not always easy for the prosecution to prove because often the witnesses are reluctant to participate in the proceedings. That is not blessed that you got a $650 car payment when you should be paying literally less than $300 for the same exact vehicle. Do you want to live like a... a, a I don't do credit cards or I don't do, I can't get a loan or I can't upgrade my house or I can't do this or I can't get a better car from a family or I can't even buy my first house because my credit shit. Like, wh why do you want to live like that? You're thinking about it's so difficult to get it to, to my credit score raised because you never were taught it. It's not your fault, but I'm here to help you and tell you it is extremely easy to raise your credit score. And I'm going to give you four tips on how to do it. And the first one that I'm going to give you is this. Did you guys know that there are ways to remove negatives from your credit report? In fact, you have the right to remove anything that's negative, obsolete, unfair, unduly incorrect from your credit report. The onus is put on the credit bureaus for them to verify the information or remove it. You all know that you have the legal right to challenge the information on your credit report, okay? Now, whether you hire somebody to do that or you do it yourself, the difference is one are professionals and the other one's you, and you may not know what you're doing, right? One is time, takes a lot longer. The other ones know exactly what to look for and how to remove it, okay? But did you know that you can actually add positives to your credit report? And I don't mean trade lines. I don't mean authorized user trade lines. What I mean is, can you imagine if you could actually add your rent payments that you've been making rent on time with, your cable bill, your phone bill, your Netflix bill? All those payments could be added as positives to your credit report. But you have to know about a few things, and that's why I bring it to you. If you guys don't know about Rent Reporters or Rental Karma or Experian Boost, those three things I just told you, you go back to this video a hundred times if you need to. Your phone bill, 
your cable bill, your um, Netflix account, your rent payments that you've been making payments. You could even contact your, if you bought a house, you can even contact your, uh, the owner of the house that you're renting from and ask, it's worth a shot, if they would report the information to the credit bureaus. It don't even have to be an apartment. What you want to do is rental reporter, rent reporters or rental karma, they will report the rental payments of history back at least two years. Okay, And when I talk about FICO 10 in a minute, you're going to understand why it's important. They go back two years. So immediately, you just got two years of positive history. Now remember that your credit score is made up of a different element. 35% is your payment history. So what if you could put positives and sink down some of those negatives? Right? Let's look at this for a minute. Let's say you have three or four negatives and you have maybe one positive that you make and making payments on. Example. What if you then soak down and push down those negatives by putting on your rent, your cable, your phone, and your Netflix payment? Experian Boost, contact Experian Boost. They'll be able to add everything except for your rent. Rental reporters or rental karma will be able to add your rent payments. If you're renting a home, possibly the homeowner can actually report the data to your credit bureaus. It's worth a shot. I just gave you something that literally is 35% of your credit scores, your payment history. The more history you have on there, it's going to push down the negatives by putting positives on. Tip number two, utilization. This is 30% of your credit score. Let me give you an example. There's been a big controversy of where do we want to keep our utilization at? Most people say, if you keep it under 20%, you're good. That's wrong. The most beautiful number that you're looking for is the number two. It's not paid off. Most people will say paid off completely. In my opinion, not correct. Okay, Paying it off, then basically you won't have any interest, but it won't be revolving from the standpoint of it actually reporting each month. You want to show a little bit, and I mean very little bit, and that magic number two will have your highest credit score possible. Now, so when I say tip number two is utilization, what I'm talking about is take a look at all your credit cards that you have. Okay? Here's what you need to do. This is called the snowball effect. What I want you to do is I want you to go through each credit card. And the first thing you need to do is call the back of the card and ask the card for the closing statement date. Each one of your credit cards will have a different date. Okay? So let's say you've got a thousand, a five hundred, and a three hundred. Your lowest credit card is three hundred, then you have a five hundred. What's commonly referred to as rape elsewhere is legally called sexual assault here in the state of Nevada, and it requires sexual penetration, however slight. It does not necessarily have to involve intercourse. It's without the consent of the party or under circumstances in which you reasonably should have known that the person was incapable of consenting. 
A common example of that would be someone is passed out, drunk, or on drugs, so they're not able to understand what's taking place. Ultimately, the issue of what constitutes penetration is up to a jury to decide. The instruction itself says that any penetration, however slight, is sufficient. But we're often actually debating at trial whether a penetration occurred, if it was touching on the outer lips, for example, of the vagina, or if there was a licking, how far, literally, how far in did the tongue go? And these are questions for juries to decide as to whether or not there's actual penetration. If a prosecutor here in Nevada believes that someone tried to sexually assault someone, but there was not penetration, then they could be charged with the crime of attempt sexual assault, which carries slightly less penalties of 2 to 20, as opposed to a possibility of 10 to life if you're convicted for sexual assault. If there's substantial bodily injury, it's life with parole after 25 years or life with no parole at all. Also, for any sexual assault crime, if you are convicted, there will be lifetime sex offender registration. We find that a lot of innocent people get wrongly accused of rape. And this happens really for a number of reasons. First of all, there's a lot of false accusations. A lot of times the accuser will, will make accusations out of anger or jealousy or spite. We've seen situations where a guy was dating a young lady and uh, she wanted to take the relationship further and she wanted to be exclusive and he didn't want to do that and, and wasn't giving her the attention she was seeking. And she felt insulted and she felt hurt and made false accusations out of spite to get him in trouble. And situations like that are actually very common. We also find a lot of times the accuser will make a false accusation of rape uh, in order to get attention. A lot of times the accuser has mental health issues. The accuser is a, a narcissist. Uh, and the accuser likes the idea that they're so desirable that other people are desperate to have sex with them and uh, desperate enough to commit rape. And so they imagine things and they make false accusations to try to create this reality as part of their mental pathology. We see this very commonly. Also, a lot of accusations of rape arise out of a misunderstanding. So it may be a situation where you went out with someone and you guys were making out and there was foreplay and you ultimately had sex with the person but later the person says, oh, I didn't really want to do it, but I, I was scared to speak up. I was scared to say no. I, it was against my will. But if that person didn't communicate that to you, and based on the circumstances, you honestly and reasonably believed that they were into it and that it was consensual, then that's really not a rape. There are many defenses to sexual assault. And notwithstanding the fact that these charges are very serious and it's very scary if you're charged, in most circumstances we come to learn that there are two sides of the story and the issue of consent is often very murky. If we can show 
that our client reasonably believed that the other party was consenting, we can win a not guilty verdict because the state has to prove that the sex occurred without consent. Again, often that's murky. And when it's murky, it's hard for the state to win a conviction.